Welcome to another episode of Daf Shui Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a daf or so. This week we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of the massacre at Kent State, where four college students were uh, shot down and killed and others wounded on the campus of Kent State in Ohio by a National Guard. Meantime, that administration was out of control, bringing the experience of Vietnam to the college campuses. Two weeks later, two African-American students were shot at Jackson State, and unfortunately there, it wasn't a first, but rather another in a long line of African-Americans who were murdered by their own government. On a happier note, today is was the Siyum, um, the celebration of the end of the studies of a new crop of rabbis at my beloved institution, Ziegler, Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at AJU. Um, seven new rabbis are in the process of completing their studies. This is the first celebration they assume today. So shout out to the new Ziegler rabbis. Okay, we're going to start on, we are on 23A, according to the pagination that is found in the Gemara, which has been reproduced from that which was typeset, published, and produced by the widow and brothers Ram in Vilna Lo these 150 years ago. So we're on 23a, about eight lines from the top in the Mishnah. If you have a dovecote and you want to set up a dovecote, you have to distance it from the city 50 cubits. A person should not set up a dovecote in his own property unless he has 50 cubits around on each side around the dovecote of his own property. Rabbi Yehuda says you actually have to have the amount of property on which you can grow four kur of grain, which is, or also the... Uh, distance of the flight of a dove. Actually, the Rambam, as opposed to all other commentators, understands that as Melo Shigar Hayona, the distance or the the uh, the length and breadth of a flock of doves. But if he bought the land and the dove goat was over there, so even if it if it has a much smaller amount, then he can retain his ownership of it. So a number of things before we get into the measurements about pigeons and doves in antiquity. This is from an article called Dovecotes from the Roman and Byzantine Periods and Overview from the Journal on Hellenistic and Roman Material Culture. So the domestication of birds, including pigeons, was common in late antiquity. The terms dove and pigeon were used interchangeably. My editorializing is just that doves had better press agents, and therefore pigeons are hated and doves are loved. Due to its high nitrogen and phosphorus, mixed pigeon waste served as an excellent fertilizer for deficient soils. Thus, pigeon droppings were successfully and efficiently utilized as a rapid and advantageous compost in territories which lacked profitable agricultural yields. So people raised doves, not necessarily for the doves themselves, but rather for their manure. Pigeons nesting and breeding in controlled conditions of captivity did not require special treatment or capital investment. Flocks could be accommodated in modest structures. The location of their dwellings was chosen far from large trees that could house birds of prey and shielded from prevailing winds. Their construction obeyed a few common safety features. 
limited access doors, and smooth walls with a protruding horizontal band of stones to prohibit the entry of climbing predators. And also, they were often situated adjacent to a vineyard or a garden, so they were near where their products were used. And this actually describes well what's going on here in the Mishnah. The owner of the land wants to set up a dovecote, and the tension is that he wants to set up the dovecote, or she wants to set up the dovecote, close to where the manure, the fertilizer, the compost is, is useful. It is right next to the garden, to the orchard. On the other hand, that means that the dove is also next to adjacent property. And the doves can fly and steal, in other words, eat seeds from other people's property. And that is theft for the owner of, of the doves. So that's why we need all this distance between the doves and other properties or between the doves and the city. So now the basic dispute here is whether or not in the, the first opinion that you have to have 50 amot inside. If, you have, if you're having a dovecote inside your own property, you need 50 cubits in each direction. Cubit is something like 18 inches. Rabbi Yehuda says you need way, so 18 inches and times 50 Rav Yehuda says, actually, you need way more. You need Beit Arbat Kurin. And what Beit Kur is the amount of land that's necessary to grow a core of seed. And uh, that uh, that space is actually about four and a quarter to six acres. And that depends on other measurements. We don't have to go into the whole thing. Which means that a football field is about 1.32 acres. So four football fields is a Beit Kur. So four Beit Kur, which is what Rabbi Yehuda demands, is about 16 football fields. You need 16 football fields of property in order to have a dove cut so that when the dove flies, it doesn't get to somebody else's property. However, despite that, if you bought a property with a dove coat, even if it only has a Beit Rova Hakav, the amount of property that it takes to 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 plant a quarter of a kav of seed, which is about 25 square meters, then it's still okay because you bought it. And then we're gonna, that's part of what the Gemara is going to talk about. What does it mean? What is the implication of the fact that you bought it from somebody else and it was already there? So the Gemara asks, go into the Gemara. Stam asks. Chamishim amavetulo, so only 50 amot, meaning that's as far as a dove will go and that's as far as we have to worry about the dove. Ruminhi, there's a contradiction from a Mishnah in Bava, in Bava Kama, in the seventh parak, seventh chapter. Ein porsin nashavin leyonim elim ken ayarachok min ayishuv shloshim ris. One is not allowed to put out traps for pigeons unless they were more than 30 ris from a settlement. 30 ris is about four Roman miles or 3.7 American miles. So that's pretty far out. And that's way more than 50 cubits. So what's going on? They fly, a dove actually can fly 30 reis, let's say, the 3.7 miles, but the dove is only eating for the first 50 amot, and then uh, his belly is full after 50 amot. So the stam does not let up. It only flies, the dove only flies 30 reese and no more. Bahatanya, is there not a bright dove? If you're setting up traps for doves in a settlement, even a hundred miles, a hundred Roman miles from the dove cut, you should not set it up. You have to distance even more than a hundred miles. You know, you can't set up traps in a settlement where there is a dove cut. So why? 
In other words, that that means that the the doves are expected to fly way more than the thirty reefs. They're even a hundred miles, hundred Roman miles. No, this is a specific, special case. We're talking about a settlement which is a settlement full of orchards, and therefore the doves will follow the orchards and they'll be drawn way past where they normally fly because of the orchard, because of the fruit, the trees. Rava Omer B'yishuv Shovachin. Rava says it's actually talking about a settlement which is full of dovecots. So therefore the dove will fly because it's attracted to the other doves and it'll keep going way beyond the, its normal flight length. So why don't you say in that case, if that's actually true, they're talking about Shovachin. So then actually, why don't you say that the problem is actually all those other doves. So that you, it's not that you have one dovecote and you're worried about the trap getting that one dovecote, but rather it's all those other doves that you're going to trap that also belong to people. So there are three answers. One, you could say that actually those other doves belong to the guy who's setting the traps. Or you can say that they belong to a knani. And here's a phenomenon that we saw Two weeks ago, it says Kanani in all the printed editions, but actually all the manuscripts say Goy. Right? So it's a so all these doves belong to a non-Jew, and therefore if a dove of a non-Jew flies into a trap, it's not considered theft. We buy a or they are these are doves which are not owned. So therefore we don't care about the doves which aren't owned because you know those are the doves that are that you're allowed to trap even though seemingly they're domesticated because they live in dovecots, or maybe they're wild and they just found their way to dovecots, but they are ownerless. Okay. Budomer Beit Arba Kurin. Rebuda says, at the end of the mission, it's actually referring not to the line. Rebuda says that you need the amount for four Kurin, which is this really large amount. But it's actually talking about the second part of that. Imlacho afilu Beit Rova Rebu But if you bought a field with the dovecot, you need a very small amount of property around the dovecote, whatever is there, and still you're allowed to, still it's established as being there, and you don't have to take it down. Right? You're not allowed to build it, you're not allowed to put up a dovecote unless you have this enormous amount of property, this 16 football fields of land. But if you buy it, it only has to have 25 or 30 to 35 square meters of land. Why? So Rav Papa says, and some say that it's Rav Zvid who says, these are Babylonian Amoraim, the sixth generation. This uh, this means that the system, the legal system, or the courts, make the claim for a buyer or for an heir instead of the heir. In other words, that the heir doesn't have to claim well, it was here already. I didn't have to do it. That's built into the system that if you buy it. So that's why it says, There is already an assumption that this was built legally because I bought it. I bought it from somebody else. And so the courts will already make that assumption for me. Yoresh Tanina. So we don't have to, we don't need this halacha to tell us about an heir because it already says in the next chapter, if somebody came and claimed a piece of land as an inheritance, so then he doesn't need a detailed claim. He doesn't have to say, well, here, this is where my father got it, or this is where my ancestor got it. He just says, I'm a Yoresh, I'm the heir, and that's it. He just has to prove that he's the heir, perhaps, but he doesn't have to prove how, he doesn't have to show how the property got to land. He doesn't need the contract on the property. But 
we need this halacha in our Mishnah, perhaps, to tell us that a buyer, that the court has to, will make a claim for a buyer. No, that's not true, because we already have another Mishnah which tells us about a buyer. If somebody bought a courtyard, which apparently has a, a wall, and that wall has corner posts or corner stones and balconies, which go out over the Rishat Rabin, the public domain. So it's still, that wall stays in under the assumption that it was built legally, so therefore the new owner doesn't have to knock it down, right? In other words, you're not allowed to, the, the Mishnah tells us, that one is not allowed to build if one, on, if one has a property which borders on the public domain. So, you're not allowed to put balconies out over the Rishat Rabim. In other words, you are taking the, as it were, the air rights of the public domain. We're not allowed to have corner posts, which move out into the Rishat, into the public domain. But if you like that kind of building, so just move your house farther back and move the wall of your courtyard farther back and then put the balcony out further into over property, which is still yours. But the Mishnah there says, If you bought a courtyard, and already has those balconies or porches and corner beams. So then uh, the assumption is that when they were built, before you bought it, when they were built, it was built legally. So then you don't have to worry about it, and the court will claim on your... So this seems that the court is claiming on your behalf that it's okay that it was that it was legal. So, and again, this issue is the boundary between the, the private domain and the public domain. The boundary line is between one property and another seems permeable at times, and at times it is solid. Because where does the property end? We have both with the doves flying. If I have property, the doves, my doves are not going to respect the boundary lines of the property. So what do I have to do in order to make sure they don't invade your property? So what is the boundary line ultimately of the property? Same thing here. If we're on the boundary of, of the private domain and the public domain, at what point can I go into the public domain or not? Apparently there's a solid line, unless there was some sort of already existent presence over into the public domain. So that halacha is already there. So why do I need the halacha here, which tells us that if this dovecot was already in this property and I bought the property that I could keep it, I already have the halacha there. Tzricha. No, we need both. If the Mishnah only taught me there about the case of the Shuturabi and things going into the public domain, in which he could have said, move into your own property and build it. So, or so either we assume that this is his property, or we assume that the folks who had other folks who had access to the public domain forgave him and said it's okay. But here, there's nothing like that because it's in a private domain. And if we only knew the halacha here about the dovecot in the property, in the private property, since it belongs to a single, one person, so we'll say that that's because this, the former owner actually went around and you know made it up, smoothed things out with his neighbors. Or they um, forgave him. They said, you know what? Yeah, it's okay. But if it's talking about the Rishut Rabim, 
who are the rabim? Who is the public that one can appease or who will let the person do this? Does every single person? What does that mean? So we'd say in that case that he's not allowed, that, that there is no chazakah, therefore we need both of these halachot. This week's podcast is brought to you by Job and Friends Group Therapy. Are you feeling down? Sad? Does it feel like your life is going nowhere? Well, come to Job and Friends, and after your first hour of group therapy, you will realize that your life could be so much worse. Now, Job and Friends have locations in both Surah and Pumpadita. And for listeners of this podcast, if you mention Daf Shui, you get a 20% discount off your first session. Job and Friends, because your life could be so much worse. So the Gemara talks about the last phrase in Mishnah. It remains in its assumption of ownership. This is a halacha that we learned at the end of the la- of last week's sugya. Did not Rab Nachman say in the name of Rabbi Barabua that there is no assumption of ownership over something that's an ongoing tort? So here we have a dovecote that's seemingly an ongoing tort. So why can we, how can we say that there's an assumption of ownership, that there's a chazaka? So Ramari says, no, that's only talking about something like smoke. If you have fire and the smoke is an ongoing tort, an ongoing source of damage. Ravzid said, actually, that's talking about an outhouse uh, built on top of the land, and that is an ongoing source of damage. But... Other than that, you're allowed to have chazaka, even something that seemingly has, uh, seemingly can cause damage, like a dovka. Okay, we're turning the page. 23b, Mishnah. Nipola nimtza betoch hamishim ama, harei hu shel bala shovach. If a bird is found on the ground within 50 amot of a dovkot, it belongs to that dovkot, to the owner of that dovkot. If it's outside of that perimeter of 50 amot, 50 cubits, it belongs to the person who finds it. If it's found between two dovecots, if it's closer to dovecot A, so it belongs to the owner of dovecot A, closer to dovecot B, it belongs to the owner of dovecot B. If it's exactly in the middle, so then they both divide it. So Rabbi Hanina says, the halacha is, however, that if you have a majority and you have distance, a nearness, so the thing that takes primacy is the majority. The classic example is if you have a piece, you find a piece of meat, and the majority of butcher shops in the town are not kosher, but the meat is closest to a butcher shop, which is kosher. So where do you go? Do you follow the distance or do you follow the majority? That's the difference between Rov and Karov. And Rav Hanina says that in that case, we follow the majority, right? So, but what about here? Here we're following the distance. Why are we, why are we undermining that principle? And even though both, this is the Stam expounding on Rav Hanina's principle, even though the majority is found in the Torah because it says, you should go after the majority. The Kurva Doraita and the, the principle of that which is closer is also from the Torah because it says, see in a minute, the city which is closest to the dead body. Even so, majority takes primacy if both of those things are equal. 
What about the pasuk that the city which is closest to the dead body? So before we go on to the question, actually, this isn't a question yet. This is the case of the Eglarufa, which the Eglarufa is actually the sacrifice that comes at the end of the case. The case is of a person who's found dead between two cities, and they don't know who killed him. It's part of the list of laws of war in Deuteronomy. They don't know who killed him. And so they measure to the two closest cities, and the city which is actually closest has to do this ritual. And the ritual involves taking a, a lamb, which has not worked, and killing it by decapitating it from the back of the neck. It's kind of an anti-sacrifice. It's a whole very interesting and involved ritual. A non-sacrifice sacrifice, because it doesn't take place on an altar. It doesn't take place in Jerusalem. It's sacrificed in the back. It's blood is spilt on the ground or in, in a wadi. But the point of it is to expiate the blood from the ground and for the elders of the town to be able to say, we did not spill this blood. And in the subtext of it saying, well, we should have paid more attention. Perhaps we were responsible in some oblique way for this death. This is important because that's a case of where you have something lying, this this corpse was also between two cities. And so that's what Rebzer is asking in that case of Ayayir Krovala Halal, the city that's closest to the corpse. Are we talking about even if the other city or another city was larger than the first city? So what about that case? Bidaleka. So the Gemara answers, when there is no other city that's larger. Might not be another city right around it that's larger, but why not go after or look at the rest of the world? The majority, of, if you're going to, if you look at the majority of people in the world, then the probability is that this person is not from this city, but from other cities. Yoshevet Bein Arim. No, it's because we're talking about a case where the person was found between two mountains, and therefore there's only one path to get that the person could have come from, and that path comes from a city. It's not, it says in our Mishnah, A bird that's found fallen on the ground within 50 amot of a dove coat, belongs to the owner of that dove. So again, asking the same question, what about if, is this also true if there's a large dove, a larger dove coat, which isn't as close? Because the probability that it's from that dove coat. Bidaleka. So the more answer is just like in the first case. No, there is no other. So if that's true, so say the end, let's read down to the end of the Mishnah. If it's outside of the perimeter of the 50 cubits, then it belongs to the person who found it. If there is no other dovecote, so it definitely fell from the dovecote that's within the perimeter of the 50 amot. So why does the person who find it get it? There's no other dovecote. Where else could it come from? So what are we talking about? We're talking about a case of a doddering dove, dove that's walking along. said this about doves. If a dove walks or dodders along, waddles along, it doesn't waddle more than 50 amot. So if it was outside the perimeter of the 50 amot, it didn't belong to this dove coat because it couldn't have gotten there. By Rabirmiya, as Rabirmiya says, If one of the dove's feet was inside the 50 amot perimeter and one was outside the 50 amot perimeter, so then what's the halacha? And on this, they kicked Rabirmiya out of the Beit Midrash because he was being a wise guy, apparently. It was actually two 
Rashi says it's because he's being a wise guy, he's being annoying. Tosin says because he's asking a question about something that's impossible. We just had Rav Ukva Barachama say that a dove only waddles 50 amot. And then he's saying, what if it waddles 50 amot? Plus he puts his leg out. So Rav gets kicked out of the Beit Midrash, which is ironic because this Mishnah seems constructed for just these types of questions, right? The Mishnah ends, Mechza al-Mechza. What happens if the dove is right in the middle of between two dove cuts? Right? That doesn't seem to be such a different question than what happens if the dove's leg gets on top, gets outside the perimeter of 50 amot. So there is a happy ending to this story of Rav Yirmiya, the end of Bava Bacha in 165b. It's not just at the end, it's in the second to the last chapter. There are stories, four different stories of sages sending Rav Yirmiya questions, halachic questions, and each of the halachic questions has to do with this kind of a situation, which is like half and half, right? The first one is, if you in a situation where you need testimony, two witnesses who either testify in writing or orally, and you have one in writing and one in oral, what do you do? Or is a situation of two witnesses who testified, one testified in one court, one testified in the other court, can they then come to a single court and have their testimony count as one when you need witnesses to testify as one? Or in those kind of cases, um, we have final with three judges who sat together and then one of them died. Are they allowed to write Bumotav Tlata Havina, which is kind of the boilerplate of a judgment? We were sitting as three judges because we were three judges, but now we're no longer three judges. So in each of these cases was sent to Rabirmia, and Rabirmia answers. Before he answers, he, he he prefaces his answer in each of these three cases by saying, I am not worthy that you have sent me this question. But thus, the reasoning of your student is following the following, is in the following way, right? I, in my humble, basically saying, in my very humble opinion, I think the following. So in each one, he gives them an answer. So after these four cases... The Gemara says, Valda And on this, they brought Rabirmiya back into the Beit Midrash. So I think that this suggests that the problem here, the problem in our Gemara, is not that Rabirmiya was asking kind of questions that are difficult or that are annoying, but he was asking, he was being arrogant and trying to undermine the questioning and answering because his questions are not that different from other questions we find. But they seem to get that he was trying to undermine the procedures in the Beit Midrash. And then his tshuva, as it were, was to put himself back in the hierarchy by saying, no, I am only your student, and answering these questions humbly, even though answering them. So Rabbi Yirmiyah got back into the Beit Midrash, and they all lived happily ever after. But the Gabara goes on. Tashma, come in here. Nimtza bein shnei shovachot karov shalov, karov shalov. If... This is back on Mishnah. If the dove is found between two dovecoats, if it's closer to dovecoat A, then it belongs to the owner of dovecoat A. If it's closer to dovecoat B, it belongs to the, the owner of dovecoat B. And even though one of the dovecoats was bigger than his friends, bigger than the others, and it's right in between both. So in a case where the distance is even, is equal, why don't you take into account the size? So, what are we talking? What kind of case are we talking about? Where both dovecoats are exactly the same size. So let's actually take into account 
the majority of Dafkats in the whole world, which means it's probably not from this one, it's probably from someone else. So no, what are we talking about? We're talking about a dove coat that was on a path inside an orchard. So when the dove was doddering along, it couldn't see anything outside the orchard because there are trees. It's because if it had come from the world, in other words, from someplace else, when it was doddering along, it would not have been here. Why? Because we have a principle. Any a dove that is wandering along, that uh, is doddering, and can turn around and see the dove cut, see the nest from where it came, continues to dodder. But if it doesn't, if it no longer sees the nest from whence it came, it stops walking. So therefore, it couldn't have come from any place outside because we're in a path inside an orchard. Um, and then it must have come from the dove coat that it saw behind it. Okay, we are going to stop here on this note of the wandering dove. We're going to go on next week and talk more about rov and karov, about the tension between majority and distance. We're also going to be continuing to talk about what boundaries mean between properties and acquisition. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this 40 minutes or so. If you did, please go to the podcast page and rate the podcast. Hopefully you'll give me a good rating and a comment. And more important, please tell all your friends and bring them to the Beit Midrash next week so that we can hear Kolashel Torah, the sounds of learning Torah all over the place. My name is Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. In the booth is Eli Unger Sargon, our producer, an engineer who makes this podcast so easy to listen to. Have a great week, and hopefully I will see you again next week here in the Bay.